You are listening to a Cold Lake Community Church podcast. We hope today's message inspires you. Cold Lake Community Church, a place where families connect. This morning, the title of my message is God is Good. That ain't a joke. God is good. And uh, I'd say, I don't know, maybe a month and a half ago, I was giving the offering, and I made a comment that one of the few things that I know for certain from my spiritual walk, from my relationship with Christ, is that God is good and Jesus is Lord. And since making that statement... It's amazing how it works. I feel like everywhere I go now, I see God's goodness. And it's apparent. And God is reminding me all the time of how good he is. And I see God's goodness when I wake up and I see the sunrise on my way to work, just sun cresting over, over the horizon. I see God's goodness when I see my little five-month-year-old boy, Everett, crack a huge smile. I see God's goodness when I come home from work and Sophia runs to the door and gives me a giant hug and wants to tell me all about the adventures that she had with mom and Everett that day. It's amazing how we sometimes don't see something until we see it. You know, like, for example, I remember when I was 16, my mom bought a brand new Hyundai Sonata. And I was looking at this car, and I was thinking, you know what? I don't know if I've ever seen this car before. Well, after that, I think I saw that that car about every 10 minutes when we were driving, and and I, I couldn't get out of my mind. Everywhere we went, oh, Sonata, Sonata, Sonata. But let me tell you this. When you get the goodness of God stuck in your mind, when it's flowing out of your heart, When you see the goodness of God everywhere you go, your life will be different. But if everywhere you go, you see trial, you see bad things, you see darkness, you find the one thing that's wrong of the myriad of goodness. If that's what we focus on, we're going to miss out on a huge part of what God has for us. And God is good, and he's good all the time. This morning we sang, taste and see that the Lord is good. This is a scripture that I absolutely love, because taste, it's something that we have, it's something that God's given us that is enjoyable most of the time. And is there anything better than just your favorite taste? I know when I was working at Thrifties in Victoria, Bree and I lived in Victoria for a year, and they would ship in these ripened, right off the vine mangoes from New Zealand. And I gotta tell you, these things, at first I thought, you know what, these things are like $16 a mango. No one's gonna buy these things. They're, they're like this big, and they would be sold out in like half a day, and there'd be a huge pile of them. And I'd think, how is this possible? And then one day, the produce guy had one that was a little bit bad, and he cut it up, and he came to the front, and he gave me a piece. 
And it was just like butter melting in your mouth. It was the most delicious mango I'd ever tasted. When the goodness of God flows out of your life, people will want to taste it. People want to be around it. People will want to experience it. And it's undeniable. Taste and see that the Lord is good. We've been given this amazing privilege to be able to experience God's goodness in a tangible way. Taste suggests experiential knowledge, a way of knowing God's goodness through experience. To see God's goodness has to do with what encompasses our mind and our eyes and our perception of who our Heavenly Father is. God is good, and he's good all the time. The Bible says in Psalms 106, Praise the Lord, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. Psalms 119.68 says, You are good, and all you do is good. Everything God created is good. Do you remember in Genesis, in the creation account, after each day, what God created, he reflected on it and said, that is good. And then he made man, he said, that's very good. Very good. Every good gift comes from above. We sing of his goodness on Sunday mornings like this morning. We sing songs and declare that he is a good, good father. We say that his love endures forever and God is good. But yet, there are many people that spend much of their life questioning the goodness of God. They hear that God is good, but in the back of their minds, they think, is God really good? And they have some objections to the goodness of God, because they look around the world and they see pain, they see suffering, and they have questions like, how can a good God, if he's truly good, allow pain and allow suffering? Have any of you ever had these thoughts before? I know I certainly have. And I know when I first came to the faith and my family would ask me questions and more or less kind of mock and taunt me sometimes, and they'd ask me these hard questions because they knew I didn't know the answer yet. And sometimes it would frustrate me. I wanted to know the answer. And there'd be these things, these little hang-ups that I'm like, God, I want to know these things. And that is one major objection that people have. And number two, when one's personal definition of good doesn't seem to match God. And let me tell you, that is probably the biggest problem in our society right now, is that each one of us is determining what is good based on our own perception, based on our own subjective reasoning. God is good, and he's good all the time. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is is the way of death. The scripture illustrates that our understanding of what good is faulty. In Mark 10, 10, we see a rich man run to Jesus and kneel before him and say, good father, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responded to him, why do you call me good? Only God is good. When I was in grade 10, it was kind of a, a fun English class that I had that year because I had... Um, a, a Jehovah's Witness friend on one side and a Catholic friend on the other side and another kid that was, I can't remember what he was, he was some other faith, but it was 
we all had differing opinions on different things. We'd have once in a while when, when something about scripture, God would come up. We'd have really interesting conversations that had nothing to do with whatever literature we were studying, but it was so much better, let me tell you. And I remember one day this scripture came up and one of the kids in our little table, table group there used the scripture to try to tell me that Jesus was denying his deity when he said this. And right away I knew something's not right here. No way, because I knew right away there are other times in the Bible where Jesus says he is good. For example, in John 10 he says, I'm the good shepherd. So right there, there's instantly a contradiction. There's no, and I, so I, I looked into it a little bit more. And what I began to realize here is this guy comes up to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to attain eternal life? Jesus could see the heart of that man. Jesus knew who that man thought he was. And clearly, he did not know who stood before him. He knew there was this man who he called a good teacher. And he wanted to know, how can I attain eternal life? But what's interesting is just like this man, so many people in our society today, they see Jesus as a good moral teacher but nothing beyond that. And the kind of funny thing about that is that they think Jesus is a good moral teacher, but yet they totally reject all his teachings. So what does that tell you? The good moral teachings that you think are bad. You see, when you begin to read the Word of God and you begin to read the New Testament and you see what Jesus said about himself, you begin to realize that this idea of Jesus just being a good moral teacher is not an option. He didn't leave this option out on the table. He really didn't. And there are many scriptures that, that depict this. One, like I just said, that he is a good shepherd. He did not deny that he was God, but he was simply stating that only God is good. How we know what is good is we look to God not to man. Mere man has an idea of what's good based on his perception of the world. But it's tainted, it's faulty, it's not perfect. If the way that seems right to a man leads to death, how do we know what is good? How do we know good from evil? Isn't it our conscience? Hebrews 5.14 says, but the solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. We each have a conscience, and we can recognize good when we experience it and, and evil when we experience it. But if it wasn't faulty, why does the Bible say that we need to be trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil? If it was truly intrinsic to our state as a sinful person, as a sinful humanity, then wouldn't we all have the same definition of good? We look at the world and we see that we do not all have the same definition of good, and that the definition of good seems to, seems to keep shifting. In fact, it seems to be a moving goalpost. It's a lot harder to score when your goalpost is moving around. See, the problem lies when man attempts to create his own definition for what is good. There has to be a definitive standard to apply to the term good and to the term evil. 
and our capacity to determine good from evil, if it was truly enough, then we wouldn't differ on what we consider to be good and evil. And today we wouldn't see a society that for the last, well, Western, Western culture for the last few, at least thousand years probably, that has been based on the Judeo-Christian ethic all of a sudden begin to shift. And the things that were considered right and good and true for the last hundreds of years are now not seen as good, but oppressive and patriarchal and perhaps even evil, the thing that's preventing society from moving forward. There is an absolute standard, and for the Christian, it must be the word of God. It has to be. All scripture is God-breathed, the Bible says, and it's useful for teaching, for rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that a servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The most important questions that we have about anything, we can find answers to in God's word. Sometimes there's not a direct thing for exactly what you're looking for, but there are reference points to guide us. And God's word is true. The word of God is truth, and therefore we must allow God and his word to define what is good. Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And boy, don't we seem to see a lot of that in our time. Things that even 15, 20 years ago we would have <clears throat> considered not right, and now they're mainstream. There's a shift, and there seems to be an acceleration happening in our culture and in our society. In 2 Corinthians 11.3, Paul's, Paul's writes to the Corinthians and said, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and the purity of the gospel. Here in this book, Paul's concerned that the church is not differentiating between the gospel, which was preached by the apostles, and other teachings that sounded good, but were not founded in truth. The church was beginning to embrace a different gospel. The scripture is a warning also to the church today to be mindful of the craftiness of the enemy, so that we don't continue to fall into the same traps of the past so that we don't fall into the same deceptions that people have over and over and over again. To understand what Paul is writing about in Corinthians, it's best to look at Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit <clears throat> of the tree in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of it and ate. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. What's so interesting about this Genesis account is we have Adam and Eve that are living in, in paradise. 
They're living in the Garden of Eden, this perfect place where they walk intimately with God. They encounter God's presence every day. They experience the covering of God's blessing and his goodness. They knew him intimately. And yet, in this environment, a person was still able to be lured away. See, it's rather easy. Um, I, was, I used to think about this, and I used to think that it was the evil that lured Eve away. That it was that kind of darkness that lured her away. But that's not what the Bible says here. The Bible says that when the woman saw that the tree was good. And a few years ago, we had woman, a woman's conference here, and I was helping out with the sound, and I got to kind of listen in. And Rhonda Calhoun, who's connected with our father's farm, has a teaching called The Tree of Life, where she really dives into this Genesis account of good and evil. And for the first time, I considered the thought that something could be good, but not God's will for your life. That something can be good, but it doesn't necessarily equate to that, to that being from God in that moment for you. So for example, you're walking down a path and there's a fork in the road and you see two good, two good options there. There might be two good things, but God's desire might be for you to walk down one road but you might look at the other road and think that road looks just that road looks just a little bit better, a little bit gooder, should we say? And to follow that road when you know that God is leading you another way, the Bible calls sin. The Bible says when you do something that you know in your heart is not is not right, it's not good to do, that we can classify that as sin. And so good does not always equate God's best for you. Both. Adam and Eve knew at this time that God had commanded them not to eat of this tree, but they're tricked into believing the lie that God was holding out on them. The serpent led them to question God's goodness, and if he was holding out on them, um, he was holding out good things from them, and they wanted to partake of that which was good. Adam and Eve, just like Adam and Eve, we too struggle when we try to define what is good without looking to God. If there's not an absolute standard from which to apply what is good and what is not, then while we're walking around in the dark, we're blind. And we will fail to experience the goodness of God when we don't allow God to truly be Lord of our life. As long as we determine what is good for ourselves and we determine what we want above what God wants, we are attempting to be the Lord of our own lives and we do this when our perception is limited, based on our understanding, based on what we want. Psalms 145.9 says, The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all he has made. You see, the cross is the place where the goodness and the love of God is most beautifully and articulately laid out. In 1 John 4.8-9, the NIV says, God is love, and this is how he showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world, that we might live through him. You see, God's goodness was demonstrated by his great love for us when he sent his son into the world to redeem a lost humanity. When he found people that were lost and made them found. His goodness was demonstrated as he takes a broken heart and restores it. His goodness is demonstrated when he heals the sick and a broken body. His goodness is demonstrated through the hope 
that he brings to the hopeless. His goodness is demonstrated by how he empowers and gives strength to the weak and direction to those who are aimless. He is a good God. And he's good all the time. But then how do we reconcile our unanswered prayers, the trials and the suffering that we experience in this world? Sometimes I wonder if we have a bit of a warped understanding sometimes of our interaction with pain. That we have this idea that a perfect life is one where there's no pain. One that is void of suffering. There are medical conditions that people can have where their body receptors don't allow them to sense pain. And it is one of the most dangerous types of disorders you can have. Because when you can't feel anything, you can put your hand on a burning stove and you have no idea that your flesh is burning off your hand until you smell your burning flesh. You can step on shards of glass and you have no idea that your feet are being shredded apart. And people that have these sort of conditions wish that they could feel something, that they could feel pain. Because if you think about it medically, what is pain? Pain is simply a feedback mechanism to notify us that something is wrong. Something's wrong in our life. When you feel pain physically, it's a warning that, hey, something is wrong here. And same with emotional pain. You know, when, when somebody is, is, is doing something bad to you and, and you're in a, an environment that is not good, our emotions are there to help protect us, to, to guide us, to show us when something is not right. You know, I'd like to point out that we'll never fully understand why God continues to allow suffering and pain in this fallen world after, after what he did on the cross. But I would say this, that from my experience, I've noticed that those areas of my life where I've experienced the most pain and suffering, that God always finds a way to use it for his good, for my good, and for his glory. That often when I get off, off the beaten track and I'm beginning to enter into areas that I know I shouldn't be and they begin to cause a little bit of pain in my life, It's something that helps direct me and guide me back to Jesus, to righteousness. When I read the Bible and the teachings of Jesus, I don't see Jesus promising his disciples a happy life, free from pain and suffering and trials on this side of eternity. In fact, I I read the opposite. I see him directing us and his disciples and his followers to lay aside their their wants, lay aside their selfish ambitions, to pick up their cross and to follow him. The Bible says that if we are to share in his glory, we must also share in his suffering. We also don't believe that disciples, I also don't believe that the disciples believe that the goal of life on this side of eternity was to seek comfort, safety, and just the good things in life. I see and read about a passionate group of young men who are seeking the kingdom of God above all else. I see men who are filled with the Spirit and led by the Spirit to demonstrate the love and the goodness and the power 
of God by walking in the authority that God gave them, by the Holy Spirit living in and through them, to share the truths of the life-saving message of Jesus, a message of repentance, of pursuing Christ with everything, with making him Lord over all. I read of the apostles unashamed of the gospel from which they preached, a gospel of Christ, one in which they are willing to die for the cause. Most of the apostles died horrific deaths. It's believed that maybe John was maybe the only one that wasn't crucified, that wasn't murdered in a horrific way, who maybe died of, of old age and possibly natural causes. If the goal of the Christian life of the followers of Jesus was to be comfortable, was to live pain-free and to not experience suffering, why did the apostles, those who began the Christian church, why did they have to suffer like they did? I think today it's interesting that we live in probably one of the most amazing societies the world has ever, ever brought forward. The comfort that we have in our society is amazing. I am far from a wealthy man by world standards. But I have always had running water. I've always had a comfy bed that would probably be better than any king of a thousand years ago could have ever dreamt to sleep on. I've always had a roof over my head. I've never gone without food. I've never really gone hungry for longer than a day. And that was only because I left my lunch at home and mom refused to bring it. Do you know what? It used to frustrate me so much. Other kids would call mom and say, mom, I left my lunch. And mom would be running to the school with a little lunch bag and they'd open up and there'd be a little note in there with a little smiley face and an I love you. I never got that. My mom was the mom that put all the stuff out, put the bag on the counter, said, make your own lunch, make your own sandwich, and if you forget it, I'm working. I'm not leaving my job to go take you your lunch. And so that's why you have to have friends, folks. When you forget your lunch, you gotta have people to depend on. They might be giving you the stuff they don't want, but still, when you're hungry, when you're hungry, those gross fruit snacks, or the apple, or you know, the, browned, the browned apples, ooh. Talk about first world suffering. <laughs> but seriously, think about the last 10 things you would have complained about. I, I, I say this phrase quite a lot in my life right now, talk about first world problems, because most of the things I complain about are such first world problems. Like when I'm driving up the road and I don't make the light and it turns red and it's like, oh, are you kidding me? And then I go drive in Edmonton and it's like gridlock and I'm just like, I have nothing to complain about Cold Lake. Like, if I have to stop at one light, big deal. But I can honestly say suffering, real suffering, I haven't encountered it. My view and my experience of suffering is so mild that when I reflect on it, I almost feel ashamed of how much I, I nag and complain about those things. But suffering, 
How does a loving God allow there to be suffering? 1 Corinthians 13 says that we live in the day of faith, hope, and love. We are told to abide in these things, but then told that the greatest of these is love. The Bible says that God is love. And if love is at the core of who God is, and in fact, God is love, then it is one of the highest values of God's universe. And in order for love to be real and true, it has to be voluntary. It can't be forced. I used to wonder, why is it that God allowed there to be that tree? If God foreknow everything, why did he put that tree there? Because God knew that he wanted, he didn't just want little robots that would love him, were forced to love him, that by default couldn't control what they did and could only do what God had pre-wired them to do. But he is love. And God knows that love is not forced love, but is given willingly. And that's what we see with Jesus. We see this glorious invitation he comes to a fallen world and dies for everyone. And all who will receive him can have freedom and life and spend eternity in his presence forever and ever and ever in heaven. God made us a self-determining creatures. In other words, we have a free will. He's been get, we've been each been given the choice to love God or to not love him to receive him or not receive him. And if we have the free will to do good, to do God's will, we also have the choice to not do good, to pursue evil, to live in unrighteousness. And every single action, everything that we do, every choice that we make bears a consequence, good or bad. We can't avoid it. There's no way around it. Sometimes people will do what they believe is good in their own eyes and later discover that seemingly good things have led to harsh consequences. Have you ever done something that you thought was good at the time and later when you reflected back on it, you realized you deeply regretted it? I was somebody who, in school, was somebody who was always afraid to cheat. There are times that I wouldn't study, I'd show up to an exam, and I would want to do well. And I had a couple friends who had devised really creative ways to cheat. I was tempted many, many times, especially when I got into high school and I felt like those grades really mattered. But I could never get myself to do it. But some of my friends that did continue to cheat got caught. In the moment, it seemed right to them that they just needed to do whatever they could to get the best grades so they could move on to university because they needed the point, the grade average to do it. And in the end, they got rolled over. Sometimes the quickest route, the route that seems good at the time, is not the right route. And we need to always be pursuing God's best for our life, God's will for our lives. Not just what is good, but what's God's will. 
in everything, in every area of our life. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he'll receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. He himself does not tempt anyone. Jesus promises that in this life, when we choose to follow him, that we will face trials, that we will have troubles, but take heart, for he has overcome the world. Sometimes our trials have nothing to do with us. They're outside influences that are imposed on us. But other times, some of the challenges in our life will be self-induced. They'll be the consequence of poor decisions that we've made. And to blame God for the poor decisions that we made is very foolish. I've attempted to do it. It didn't work out for me very well. You see, I know in my life, the poor decisions that I make, when I succumb to temptation, and when I sin, God is always there to forgive me. He's always there to pick me up. But I've learned not to, not to blame God. Because he will pick us up, and we will sometimes fail. But the key is to always trust in God, and to seek forgiveness, and to not just ask for forgiveness by confessing, but actually following through with repentance. It can be very easy to fall into a sinful habit and to just continually go back to God and say, God, forgive me, God, forgive me, with every intention of doing the same thing tomorrow. That's not repentance. Repentance is when we literally do a complete turn we leave that old thing that we've been pursuing. We leave the sin and the dust and we pursue righteousness. We pursue God. You see, we serve a God that operates very differently than the world operates. It's an upside down kingdom. God says that when, when we are weak, he is strong. As some of you here this morning feel caught up in cycles of, of something, lean into God. When you stumble, don't hide. You can't hide from God. Even Adam and Eve tried. That's when we have to press into God even more and fully trust in his grace and his mercy and his power and his Holy Spirit working in us to sustain us to transform us into his likeness. It's not something that we can do on our own by our own strength. It's something that the Holy Spirit does in and through us by his power working in our lives as we allow him to. When you are weak, he is strong. We must continue to press in and believe on his promises and what his word says and press in and fall on our face in the hard times. Genesis 41:52 says this, for God has caused me to be faithful in the land of my affliction. Do you remember the story of Joseph? It's found in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis. And in the biblical account, we see how he is mistreated and betrayed by his own brothers, sold into slavery. We see him continually being mistreated and falsely accused, forgotten, and made to wait. 
In fact, he spent 13 years wrongly imprisoned. And 13 years, after the end of 13 years, but, sorry, let me start that sentence again. He spent 13 years wrongly imprisoned and 22 years before he was reconciled with his brothers who betrayed him. Joseph knew what it felt like to not see resolution in his life. He knew what it felt like to seem like the justice of God was being delayed. He did not see life work out as he would have thought and probably would have hoped. But just as he would receive favor, life would throw him back down again and circumstances would set him back even farther. In the devotional book, Grace Laced, Ruth Chell Simmons writes about how she found assurance in a season of pain and a series of seemingly impossible situations in her own life through the story of Joseph. In fact, she writes this, it's easy to assume the climax of Joseph's story is his brother seeking forgiveness at the end. But that's, after all, what we long for, isn't it? But I don't think that was the lesson that the Lord taught Joseph that day. Instead, Joseph focused on the sovereignty of God at work in the midst of his prolonged suffering. He rested in God's purposes when he could have been bitter towards his brothers and even God. Instead, Joseph says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. He brought me this position so I could save the lives of many people. Genesis 50, 20. Joseph fixed his eyes on the ultimate purpose of his affliction, to know the Lord's faithfulness, to accomplish his will in and through a life that is completely dependent on him. God is faithful to finish what he begins. And you, if you are facing trials this morning in your life, don't give up. Press in further. Get around people who know how to operate in the authority of God. Get around people who will lift you up and pray for you and encourage you. Don't isolate yourself. Get before the throne of God. Don't wallow in shame when you fall and you stumble. But cry out to God like David did, don't let your spirit leave me, Lord. I need your spirit in my life. We sang about that this morning. I need you more. Trust me, after I sin, I need God more than I did right before I sinned. Desperately more. God is faithful to finish what he begins. Press into God, trust in him, and believe he is good, regardless of your understanding of how this season could possibly be used for your good and his glory. Sometimes there's things that happen in life that we just don't have the answers to. But like I said, when we know that God is good, and when we look for God's goodness, everything will change. Two people can go through exact same circumstances, and they can draw completely different meaning from that circumstance. You see this in families that are very broken, where there's a lot of abuse cycles. And you might see two siblings that had the exact same parents, that went through the same issues, that were maybe one year apart from each other. And one of those children will grow up and use that, find, find that as, as a point to propel their life into greatness. 
and the other one will allow it to ruin the rest of their life. They'll dwell on the pain, dwell on the abuse, dwell on those things and never find freedom. I'm sure you've seen this. Maybe you have experienced this in your own family life. But the point is, it's not about the circumstances of your life. It's about how we view them, where we place it in our life. And if we allow those things, our life circumstances, to be greater than the power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. When you don't know how this hardship could possibly use for your good or your glory, press into him, pray, seek his face. Do not be deceived, my brother, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or no shifting shadow. God is good all the time. And I don't have the answers for a lot. But I do know this, that God is good. And the more we press into a good God, the more we'll see the goodness of God flowing from our lives. And it's not about your circumstance. It's about allowing the king of kings to reign in your life and know that you are a king and a queen. You're not a victim to your circumstances. I want to say that again. You're not a victim to your circumstances. If you turn on the news, you'd think that every single person is a victim. Our society is creating these hierarchies of victimhood. If you fit certain criteria, you are a higher level of victim. You are not a victim. You are more than a conqueror. You serve a good God. He's in you. Worship team, you can come up. morning, if you're going through something in your life, you need prayer. Come on up. I want to invite you to come up. But something else that was on my mind this morning, I didn't put it in my message, but it was this. I shared that scripture that said, actually, let me just look it up. Sorry, Kelly. just want to go back here for a sec. Um, anyhow, God's love was demonstrated through that he sent his son so that we would find life through him, that we would live through him. We have life and we have authority over our life circumstances. We're not a slave to it. And so this morning, I would just want to encourage you and invite you to come up. And if there's things in your life that you feel like you're being beat up by, to come up and say, God, I'm going to hold on to you. God, I trust in you and your goodness to get me through this. 
Lord, show me if there's something in my life, God, that I've done to allow this into my life or that I'm continually doing to allow this to reside in my life. And if there's not, to continue to speak God's word over your situation, that you are more than a conqueror. Continue to believe that you're not a victim, that you are victorious through every situation. Father, I thank you, Lord, today. Lord, that you are good. God, that we have life in you. Lord God, that we are a new creation, God, that we are sons and daughters of the King. Lord, that we're not bound by the things of this realm, God, by the things of this world, but God, we have heaven inside of us. We have your spirit, the power of God, residing in our hearts. And so, Holy Spirit, I thank you that you are here. Lord, continue to blanket this place like a thick fog. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Lord, I thank you for the freedom that we have in you. Lord God, that we are no longer slaves to sin, but God, we are slaves to righteousness. Lord, I thank you, God, that we are no longer bound by our old way of thinking, but God, you can renew our minds. You can renew our hearts, that you can make us new. Lord, refresh our minds. Lord, may your word be the absolute standard of goodness and what is true. Lord, may that reality, the reality of the kingdom of God, surround us. Lord God, would it become our inward reality, Lord God, that begins to transform our outward reality. Lord, I thank you that you are good. God, I thank you that you are great. And you want to do great things in and through us. Holy Spirit, transform us. Continue to transform us into your likeness. God, may we rest in your presence here this morning. God, may all stress, all burden, all bitterness, all anger, all resentment melt away in your presence here this morning. Love surround us. God, you are love. You are in our midst, God. Lord, I speak breakthrough this morning, a shifting, a realignment, God. Lord, those things that are out of whack in our lives, God, I pray that you bring alignment. Thank you, God. We're just going to sing. Take a moment to praise God and worship him. Reflect on his goodness. And while we're doing that,
if you need prayer for anything, if you need breakthrough in your life, if you're struggling to believe that God is good, come to the front. Our prayer team will pray with you. And we will stand with you and believe that God is greater than your circumstance, that God is greater than whatever trial that you are going through. And that the mind of God and the heart of God would fall on you. You have been listening to a Cold Lake Community Church podcast. We hope that you've been blessed by this teaching from Cold Lake Community Church. Thank you for your continued support of this ministry. Cold Lake Community Church, a place where families connect.